Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to e-commerce conversations, a podcast by Practical E-commerce. What's going on, Internet? Eric Vanels here, back again with another e-commerce conversations. I got Sean Frank sitting across from me here in Austin, Texas. He is the COO of the Ridge. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Great uh, to be here. Yeah, it is great that you're here. He's looking at Austin, relocating from uh, from LA. Yeah, fully remote, so we can kind of do whatever. Yeah. It seems like a good place to be for e-commerce. That was a product of the whole COVID stuff, right? Going remote? Yeah, we had different plans. We just like got a big office and like signed a lease on it and planned on like expanding the team. But now it seems like uh, we're on the opposite, seeing how small we can run it and how uh, widespread we could get. Yeah. Well, give our listeners a little, a little heads up of what The Ridge is in case they haven't heard of you. And, and maybe they've heard of you guys, but as a different name. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're the Ridge, Ridge.com. Really, it's uh, we have one main product, the Ridge Wallet. We started on Kickstarter like 2014. Since then, we've sold probably two and a half million wallets. And we, we launched bags, we launched knives, we launched phone cases. But really, like the main design we're known for is the wallet we designed, the Ridge Wallet. Yeah. And I would describe it as just kind of like a, a minimalist wallet, right? It's got a couple of bands and, and some hard material, right? Where you, you, you put your stuff in between the hard materials yeah. and RFID protection. And Yeah. It's like the smallest a wallet can get. So it's like the size of a credit card, two metal plates on the outside, um, and then like premium material. So we're doing like carbon fiber and titanium and like really cool designs in like Damascus and gold, like that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, what's pretty impressive with them is how they've grown. You guys are doing significant volume. I mean, you said 2 million wallets. How much do the wallets retail for? No, so the the cheapest one's 75. It's okay. the aluminum. And the most expensive one is 175, which is the Damascus steel. So you did the math on that. 75 times 2 million is $150 million. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're still growing 50% year over year. We did about 50 million top line revenue last year. And it looks like there's no uh, slowing down. Oh, yeah. The momentum keeps on going, huh? Yeah, yeah. What uh, everyone wants to know, you know, how do you grow a $50 million brand? Like, how does that happen? You bootstrapped? Are you, you got a bunch of cash from investment? How are y'all doing it? Well, the way you grow it is luck. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the first part. No, so it's Daniel and his dad started it. So Daniel's the CEO. His dad is a semi-retired CFO. They put it on Kickstarter, like no formal training or background. Paul, the dad, was a special ed teacher for 35 years. They just had a cool design. So no, totally bootstrapped, no debt, no investors, cap table of four of us. So pretty small business. Yeah. And you're still pretty small. You're, you're saying you only have 20 employees now. Yeah, probably 20 active employees. If you include Paul, maybe 21. Okay. (laughs) But I mean, still, that's like $2 million an employee. That's just unreal. Or at least to me, that's pretty wild to get that kind of production from your team. Are you all burnt out and stressed to the gills or is it manageable? 
No, so I mean, that's a number we really care about is like the revenue per person, right? And like, if you look at like public comps of e-com companies, I mean, they're nowhere near that. I mean, like the most profitable company per person or top line revenue per person is like Steam, that like the video game yeah, engine. Yeah. And they're like 1.5. So like we knew going into it, we wanted to keep a small team. And like adding more people just begets adding more people. Because like when you have 35, then you have an HR manager, then you have this person and that person. And so we all wear a lot of different hats. Everyone works really hard. I hope they're not burned out. I wish they would tell me. But we just, we take advantage of being a pretty simple business, right? Because we don't have investors like that eliminates a couple different roles. I do a bunch of different stuff. Daniel is still doing all the product development himself with Austin, like one of the co-founders. And then, you know, I joke about Paul, but no, he's, he's still like acts as our CFO, right? So he's doing all of our bookkeeping. So yeah, it, it's still a very lean team. Yeah. How is the rest of the team built out? How is it built out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the different roles that you have in-house? Yeah. So, I mean, we can run through everybody. There's two macro departments. There's people who sell wallets and people who save us money. So, like, that's, like, the first two buckets we look at. And the people who sell wallets, I mean, that'd be, like, most of the marketing team. So, I'm still involved with that a little bit because I still do a lot of our influencer stuff. But we have a CMO, Connor, who I started an agency with years ago and Ridge acquired our agency and that's how we came to work on this. Underneath him, we have Carmel, who's like our Facebook manager. We have Lewis, like a designer. We have Sydney doing email. And then we have Sebastian and Christian who also run the influencer team. And then we have like people who save us money. So we have like Leo, who's like our logistics manager. He brings everything in from China. We have Zach, like our operations person. And we have, you know, three people on our wholesale team. And then we have like a, a solid customer service team about like four to five. Yeah, it seems like you guys are, are really built very similar to Beard Brand. We, we look at it just the same way. We break it up operations and marketing. But I like the, the the whole save money and make money perspective is a pretty cool way of doing it. Wanted to touch base on just you have two people who are running your influencer program. That's a, a big chunk of how you're bringing awareness to your company, right? Yeah, yeah. So if people are familiar with us, they might have seen us on YouTube. We sponsor a lot of the YouTubers. I think it was 750 last year. So in 2020, we spent like $3.9 million, I think, doing that. And, you know, we sponsored probably like 3,000 unique videos. So like roughly 10 a day are going out that we're integrated in. Sean and I go back a little bit. So he had told us about their strategy for influence and marketing and what it's done for the Ridge. And it's just like, it blew open my eyes. I'm like, I got to do that. I got to do that. So we tried to do it here in the Beard Brand office and we kind of ran into our first hurdle, which was people would give us their media kit or they would give us a price before we gave them a price. And the, the numbers that make it out were just, you know, astronomically higher. And almost got to the point where it's like offensive if you lowballed them. And I don't know if, if that's just a skill you guys have really developed and mastered or how do you hire the right influencer manager who can keep the goodwill of the brand, but also make sure that the, the, the price is right to right. be profitable. So the kings of doing this are Manscaped. Like from what I've heard, they have like really intense negotiation training. They do, I mean, their team's 10, 10, 12, 15 people and like they hammer in how to do it. We're a little more junior. We have two people on our team and none of them have done this before, right? What one girl worked at TikTok and then she is she's just really online. She has like a good in Instagram following. So she's she's familiar with the space. And then Sebastian, the guy who's done the program the longest, he's never done this before. So we just you get fresh slates and then and then you train them. And you brought up influencers wanting more money, right? Of course they want as much money as possible, right? Everyone does. But, you know, 
we never feel like we're bad guys or offensive because we're trying to give them money, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're actually trying to support them. We're really transparent with the numbers and the facts where it's like, hey, look, like we've sponsored all of these people. This is what we typically pay. This is what we see good results with. And we want to work with you. But if you don't want to, totally fine. No ill will, right? The other way we're able to do that is we're very industry agnostic where like, you know, you guys are beard brand. So if, if you're going after people like with, with a one-to-one affinity to you guys. So if you guys are going after hair influencers or, or anybody in like the, you know, beard space, like we sponsor some barbershops and that type of stuff, right? They immediately will charge you more because there is one-to-one affinity, right? Like beauty brands pay probably a thousand X what we pay for beauty influencers, right? But there is no wild influencers. We will work with anybody, right? By being so agnostic, like if this Minecraft channel doesn't want to work with us because their rates are five X what we'll pay, well, this Minecraft channel is happy to take the money, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who want to be full-time creators, but AdSense is too fickle for them to be able to. And like, we see us as like just a secondary income source for all those people, you know, there's probably 50 accounts we've worked with for two years where it's like consistently responsive from every time. And to them, it's like a guaranteed paycheck because they know they're working with us and they can budget around that. Right. So anyway, influencer marketing is really pay what you want. It's as high as it could possibly be. It's also as low as it could possibly be. It's just and there's somewhere in between. Yeah. So do you typically lead with your rates up front? So the first communication is us just being like, hey, we like you. We're interested. We think this can work. Can we get demos? Because like another thing is, I think a lot of brands have this like, you know, dialed in view of who their customer is. And like, I think like marketing teams and branding teams tell you that like your customers 18 to 21, they live in this city, all that type of stuff. We go the opposite where it's like, if your channel is two thirds English speaking countries and 50% men, there's a good chance we want to work with you. Right. Which is yeah. basically almost every channel on YouTube. So yeah, so that's the first conversation is, is getting those demos. And then after we get the demos, what we do is we determine some price per video, right? So what we do is we take whatever their last 10 videos were, we take a CPM number that makes sense to us, which is typically three, five, or seven, like, you know, in the single digit CPM range. And then we just do some math and be like, hey, we think we can pay you $250 a video or 300 bucks a video or whatever. And then they'll typically say, I want... 2000 a video, right. right? And then we go, okay, well, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can give you $2,000, but we can get six videos out of you, right? So it's finding out where to meet them. If they want $2,000 a video, that probably just means they want $2,000, yeah. right? And you can you can find some place in the middle to give them that. And will you pay up front then, or do you prorate it? Oh, yeah. So another reason why we're able to work with so many, and I think we have a good reputation, is we pay everybody up front and then it's very hands off afterwards. Right. If people wanted to, they could steal the money and and leave. And that's happened maybe four times in the past two years. Yeah. But really, it's like, look, we're not going to require approval of your video. We don't care what the content is around the video. We don't really care where you put the ad in the video. It's like we're going to send you product. We're going to send you money. And hopefully you put the videos out like we agreed to. Yeah. There's no contracts. It's just, it's very easy to say yes. Yeah. And it's pretty simple for you because it's just like you focus on the wallet, right? Has that been also like a, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because you're trying to grow beyond the wallet. Yeah. Without a doubt, probably 96% of our revenue is the wallet. So we're very new purchaser dependent. 
and we're very wallet focused. And we really want to be able to pivot to additional stuff, right? And we launch new stuff and we try new stuff. It's, I think everyone's having the same problem, right? You guys probably don't because you have such like a line and like your consumable goods, so your LTV can be really high. But every brand I talk to that's that's built around a single skew is having a hard time cross-selling. And that's the same thing with us. I think it's a blessing and a curse because like for us, the communication is like, oh, well, you know, what fragrance do you want? And, you know, what products are you interested in? You know, we get 120 SKUs and then it just slows down everything. Whereas you can just be like, pick your wallet that you want. Do you just send one wallet or multiple wallets? We'll send them whenever they want. Yeah. So it's typically a couple of wallets because people want some for gifts. But no, I mean, I think that's a very key point you're bringing up is that the reason why we can work with so many influencers across so many spectrums is because it's it's 15 seconds of a very easy thing to understand. Cool wallet, buy wallet, right? Mm-hmm. And if you guys are trying to convey a lot of brand in your message, that's when you're going to get really expensive ad reads, right? I have a friend who runs a brand called Teamy Blends, and they do like, you know, teas and makeup and all these different type of things, and they crush it on Instagram influencers. They're trying to get into YouTube, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you need to pick one thing to very quickly be able to explain. It's like, this is the product. This is what we do. Here's a landing page for it. Yeah. Because if you're trying to sell them on brand ethos, I mean, it's going to take four minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, and then and now you have a four-minute ad read, and that's worth so much more. Yeah. That's why we're focusing on uh, scent confusion for this year. Like that's all I want people to know for beard brand scent confusion. <laughs> you know, that thing where you got different products. Yeah. Yeah. And then you end up smelling like the equivalent of like all the crayons together. Yeah, exactly. Well put man. So, uh, what's next for you guys? Yeah. I mean, good question. A year ago, basically, right. Like in March, you know, things hit panic mode, right? I mean, I don't think I'm revealing any secrets that the world got a little crazy the last two weeks of Oh, March. something happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a big thing for us is like, Daniel, the CEO, has always prioritized a very lean, flexible business, right? So the first three years of Ridge, there was three employees, right? We were an agency partner that ended up doing everything else for him. So we did customer service and logistics and all the marketing. Like basically that whole two thirds of the business was was done outside. And he did that because he's like, look, I don't care I'm overpaying you. What I care about is that like, if things happen, I can fire you. And there's no, there's nothing, yeah, right? The freedom. So March let us go back to our roots with that. We got extremely flexible, right? Like we cut, we cut burn the lowest we possibly could. And like all the executives took salary cuts, to like make sure that we could survive if something really bad happened. And then of course the other six months of that story is the e-commerce boom or whatever, everyone shopping online or whatever. So things got good, but there was that shock to the system. I think, I think helped us change the trajectory of the company where we're not going to be so growth focused. We're going to continue to be profitability focused and we're going to keep pushing until we don't want to push anymore. So I've always had the goal that we could do a hundred million dollars, right? I don't think 2021 is that year, but I think 2022 is that year. And then, you know, we have a very solid double digit EBITDA percentage. And if we can keep that up while doing a hundred million dollars, I think we're in a very strong place. So you guys are, are entirely bootstrapped, right? So it's yes. self-funded growing through profits. So you want to hit $100 million a year revenue. How fundamentally does a business need to change or can you ride your current strategies up to 100? Well, I think I'd break that down into two buckets again. One, One would be the marketing bucket and what needs to change to do that, right? Ad costs are getting more expensive. I'm not the person breaking that news, right? You know, our CPMs on Facebook, I think we're up 100% year over year for basically most of 2020. And then YouTube pre-roll CPMs were up like 300%. So the reason why we were able to be successful last year was because of pre-booked ad space, right? So like non-fluctuating ad space. That's what we do on uh, Influencer. That's 
you know, some different outlets. You can like, you know, we do a lot of email newsletter placement and like that type of stuff. That ad space isn't programmatic or dynamic. So you can lock in rates and then they don't, you don't get screwed when everyone else tries to spend money. So we're going to do more stuff there. Like we're going to hire at least two or three more people this year on a marketing team. And my big focus with that is like, because we've never done Instagram influencer because like, I'm always like, oh, that's dead. That's stupid. No one spends time there or whatever. It's just because I don't have an Instagram. I spend all my time on YouTube. But talking to that, you know, a couple of brands I know, I think there is an opportunity for us to go into Instagram. So we're going to start spending money there. And then we're going to spend money on TikTok and Twitch and, and Twitter better. But then the operation side of the business is what needs to change. We are about 90% U.S. sales. We need to start getting more international. So we launched localized store experiences in Canada, UK, EU. We launched Australia and Japan this year. And that's localized storefronts with their own currency checkouts, with the payment options they like, with inventory in country, so we can get to them quicker. Are you on Shopify? Yeah, yeah. So we're on Shopify. And the best way we found to do it was we duplicated all the stores. So when I log into Shopify, I have five accounts there now. Right. That's a big pain in the butt, isn't it? It is. <laughs> the tech side's on a challenge for us. The biggest challenge for us was the actual compliance part, which is like filing that, remitting to all those places. So we found a partner called Brand Access, and basically they're the importer and merchant of record for all those places. You pay them a monthly fee. It's like, I think we pay them $9,000 a month. And then they do, they take care of all of the counting and reporting and all that type of stuff. And then, so money hits their bank account and they transfer that money to us. Yeah. Are you seeing traction in that? Is Well, first of all, how are you targeting that audience to go from 90% US to you know 50% US? Yeah. So we're seeing good traction. We, we haven't spent very much money doing it, but what we found is that there's naturally a bunch of traffic for us in those markets, probably because of influencer, right? Like there's no targeting when we use YouTube influencer. When I say English speaking countries, I'm talking UK, Canada, right. part Australia. Of yeah. And they click the link and then it's just a better experience and they convert higher when they can be like, oh yeah, this is in my country. I'll get it in two days, all that type of stuff. Just makes sense, right? Like if you ask US consumers how often they buy from from a non-US site, it's very low, right? And so just taking that same logic and applying it globally. I mean, to kind of be a devil's advocate, in America, the, the world kind of serves Americans too, you know, like right. the, the buying power of Americans is, is outrageous, but you get a small country like, you know, the Netherlands or Denmark or, you know, they're, they're not used to everything being catered toward them. So they're more flexible in buying a dot com. So there may be a less, not as good as, you know, selling to Americans and, and that conversion rate as a foreign country, but. Oh yeah. I mean, for you would know the data better than me. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you're, you're totally right that they're more used to checking out, right? But it's for sure country by country specific, right? Like the EU as a single market has really helped with that, that like they're, they're more willing to check out places. Germany, though, like they want local, like. Yeah. Well, they do cash too. Like you, credit's a dirty word there. Yeah, dude. Yeah, they do bank transfer. They do all this type of stuff. Dude, Japan is the weirdest for, we could have a whole podcast about payments in countries. In Japan, the most popular way to buy something online is to write down a number and then go to 7-Eleven and then pay in cash with that number out of 7-Eleven. What? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems so inconvenient. Yeah, dude. Also, they have the lowest return rate in the world. Like, they won't return your things. Okay. But what instead, what they do is if, if the package is messed up at all, when it gets delivered, they'll refuse it. Okay. 
Does that happen a lot though? Like I, I imagine like a, this Japanese postal carrier who's just like very meticulous, like politely putting the box down with its two hands in front of the doorstep. And it's just, I've heard it happens like 20% of the time. <laughs> oh, is it that high? <laughs> yeah. It happens a lot. Oh um, man. They, like, so when we were going international, like this was probably it was before COVID. So a couple of years ago, Google had this big conference about international stuff. And like, you know, we, we went out there and like, they give you like consultants and like this whole thing about how to do international correctly. And like, I guess most of my thinking is informed by, by that one meeting. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, the data shows that like, you know, it, we didn't really spend any more money in the UK or the EU or Canada. And for the first time in four years, our sales are up in those markets just yeah. from, from the localized experience. So people do convert better when they see it's uh, like just stuff that's familiar to them. So anyway, the marketing side, we are going to start investing more money there, right? And we're targeting those consumers. I mean, we're going to try the proven playbook of what works in the U.S., which is like, you know, Facebook and Instagram and YouTube pre-rolls. And like the biggest challenge is going to be like, do we need to go more on the ground, right? Like, right. If, if, like do we need to figure out how people in the U.K. like to shop and, and that type of stuff? And that's going to just take probably a whole nother person just to figure that out. Yeah, we used to, we were selling in Europe back in the day, decided to pull out because of the complexities and the need to focus on our own market. And we kind of realized, I, I feel like Europeans maybe are less likely to buy online than uh, here in America. So the conversion rates, we had a localized solution as well. And the conversion rates were just always lower in the UK versus uh, here in America. So I don't know if it's just they prefer to buy in person and go to the drugstores or, but I do think there's going to be a, I mean, it's COVID time now too. So I don't know how that all that's changed everything too. I'm sure it's helped. No, but um, everyone we've talked to in the UK is like, yeah, they're still very brick and mortar, right? Like they, that's still like the, the first place they think. We actually, you brought up the Netherlands and it's so funny. Like we, we've had great penetration there out of everywhere in Europe. They're like our biggest market. And I always thought it was like a small country, but it's, I think there's like 20 million people that live there, which is like basically the size of Canada. So, and then Canada has been really good for us. And then Australia seems to be especially strong. I think they're fully adopting e-com like, like in the yeah. swings. So are you doing fulfillment centers in all those places or do you still ship everything out of your warehouse? No. So we're doing localized fulfillment as well. Really? Yeah. So. So how many fulfillment centers do you guys have then? Oh man, it, it's, a, it's a lot. So we, we have two primary ones in the U.S., and then one in all those markets, so CA, UK, EU. And then we have a customization warehouse in the U.S., which is which is people who, who, if you want your name on your wallet or engraved or whatever. And then we're on Amazon in all those markets. So we're probably sending product to like 10 to 11 places. And how many SKUs do you have? Yeah, so we limit SKUs on Amazon aggressively, right? So if you go on our Amazon U.S. right now, there's only four SKUs. And it's because if you want other stuff, you got to go to our website. And I know you famously did a whole thing about not selling on Amazon. Yeah, screw Amazon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about that and why I think you're right. Ah, good. Uh, but yeah, so we famously limit SKUs on Amazon. And then uh, the U.S. is the first to get all, all new stuff. So we probably have like 32 wallet SKUs in the U.S. And that's color style variants. And then we have, you know, backpacks and phone cases, all this type of stuff that just doesn't go to other markets. Okay, so you just you just have a truncated selection do you get a lot of support tickets from people who are just mad at you for not being able to buy that because they see it i, I guess they're only seeing the wallets on youtube it's not like they're seeing the other products too yeah and if they really want to they can go to the footer and buy from the u.s store and we'll ship it to them for free but no we've gotten zero tickets of people who've wanted to buy our backpacks in the uk i wish i wish yeah, because we had that problem like if like i think about if i go into europe 
with just one of our fragrances. Like we would get so many people over there. I want this fragrance or I want that fragrance. And yeah, I mean, because we're, we're bringing over most of our wallet SKUs and, and there is an option where they could buy from the U S we, we haven't had that issue, but I, I could definitely see why it'd be hard for your business because it is so personalized, right? Yeah. Like with what they want. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pain in the butt. So I, I kind of want to continue on this whole, like what's next. Obviously you talked about growing to a hundred mil, which is pretty impressive. Nine figures. It's a good goal to go after. Is there like IPO or selling, or is it just because you, you guys are hungry and you like doing what you're doing? We've thought about that a lot and we've had offers. I mean, the, the most popular thing that would have happened to us is a private equity acquisition right? Like that's like, we, we're doing a lot of money and I'm very proud of what we're doing in the grand scheme of things. We're considered a very much a small business, yeah. maybe a medium sized business. And the, the only real players in that space would be a, a private equity acquisition. And we've been approached by people. I mean, if I could tell you my dream it would be for Yeti to buy us as a strategic acquisition. Oh, is that why you're moving here to Austin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know a guy there. Yeah. And I think we do digital better than them. If I'm being totally honest, they're a big company. They do billions of dollars in revenue, but COVID really exposed them. Two thirds of the revenue happens in person. And it's one, it's really hard to have an e-com store do more than $100 million a year. But two, because we're so digitally native, I think we'd really add a lot of insight into what they're doing. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's my dream. But no, I mean, IPO, I've had friends who've run public companies and taken companies public and they said it's the worst experience ever. I don't think any of us are up for it. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think I'd have a heart attack. But I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, there's also, there's been such a focus on companies like acquisitions and big paydays. But if we can have a $100 million a year company with a $20 million a year EBITDA, that's a very strong business to hold on to. Oh yeah, man. You can live a really good life making that kind of money. Like, yeah. I mean, unless you want to, I don't know, buy multiple islands or something like that and a yacht to get you around. Like that's the thing that we've come to terms with. Like we were content at $3 million revenue, like making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And it's just like, after that, you know, like your, your happiness quotient is just. Yeah. And all of the people on the cap table, and I, I hope they're okay with me speaking for them. They're all very down to earth and very, like all of their lives would get worse with more money. Right. Yeah. I, I honestly believe that. But Paul and Daniel, they're like raised Buddhists. And I, I think part of it is like, they don't want the showiness of it. And then, then Austin, the other co-founder, he's just like the most down to earth guy you've ever met. So yeah. I, I honestly think their lives would get worse. If there's this massive windfall. And I mean, we're all very, we're all very happy and we're doing it. The, the reason why I've been the biggest advocate of pushing for growth, and it's mostly because of just being scared of being too small, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what I wouldn't want is some other large company to come in and just be like, we're doing your wallet now and we have more, all this budget, we can, we can bully you around. And I think hitting scale just like helps you be, be more legitimate in the space with that. So that's why I've been so feverish about it. One thing we didn't really touch base on is you have three wholesale reps what kind of accounts are you serving there and, and how is that as a proportion of your, your total revenue? Uh, so wholesale is a very small portion of revenue, but less than 3%. It's just, it compared to the digital aspect, it's just very manual to do wholesale. Maybe it's 5% now. I have to look, look at the numbers again, but um, we're in all the Nordstrom's. So that's, it's like been our big account. That's like, that's like the best one we serve. We're in all the Shields, which is also another great account, which is like the Midwest. It's kind of like an REI, but like a little more maybe outdoor focused. I don't know if that's the right thing, but like probably more like mountain focused. And then we're in, you know, we're in a thing called Van Mar, which is like which yeah. is like, a, like a Midwest chain. So we're probably in like 200 stores all, all together. Yeah. Any growth plans in that? Or is that just kind of as people reach out to you, you, you take them or your wholesale team? Are they 
smiling and dialing. Yeah, yeah. So we we recently hired a wholesale rep, Jake, from Yeti. So he's focused on like the Midwest, Northeast, and South. So he's talking to LL Bean, and he's talking to a couple of other chains that I'm, I'm not really that familiar with. I mean, the dream is to is to be an Apple, right? So like Apple released a credit card, and so like we made a white wallet. And what we'd love is for those things to go together. But the way Apple stores buy is very weird. It's like it's they're bought on a region basis. So like you have to get into the catalog, and you have to convince a region manager to buy your stuff. It's like it's like a whole thing. So that'd be the dream. Um, besides that, I mean, we're we're still in talks with REI. We're in talks with Zappos. We have a lot of great online wholesale partners like Gallantry and Huckberry. We think there's some good growth to add there, but I think the biggest growth will just be growing Nordstrom's as an account. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about is Amazon. You said that I'm the most brilliant person you've ever talked to, and and how right we are to pull off of Amazon. Uh, maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but uh, talk talk about that strategy for you, how it's working for you and anything you're excited or, or any regrets you have with it. I mean, you were ahead of the curve with talking about the evils of Amazon, right? From a merchant standpoint, I think, you know, consumers have their own ill will towards Amazon. But if you are a branded product, Amazon is is a double-edged sword. You know, if you're selling trinkets or generic goods or whatever, like, you know, Pens or, or just something, a commodity good, Amazon's like one of the best places to be. But as a branded product, Amazon doesn't do a good job conveying brand value, right? And at the same time, uh, it forces you to compete with subpar goods, which is a huge issue for us. I mean, if you go on Amazon, there's a bunch of knockoffs, right? I mean, we still have a, a large Amazon business. I mean, it's eight figures last year, right? But with, with us next to knockoffs, people violating our patent. When we go after those people, Amazon is the best partner and all that type of thing. I mean, I think they're getting better with like Project Zero and some other stuff they rolled out. But it's also just with Amazon, you're paying for an expensive warehouse that the whole value prop of the merchant is like, oh, they have consumers there. That's true. But then also they can get your goods places in two days. And there's certain people who just only shop on Amazon. But when COVID hit, they were stricter inventory levels. They start pushing your your shipment days from two days to four weeks and it feels like a multi-level marketing scheme with their ad budgets that they require right there's all of these problems with amazon i mean we're going to continue to be there but a big focus of us isn't growing amazon i think if you're a ddc brand or you know a superior good in the market and you're trying to focus on growing amazon i don't think that's the right thing to do yeah i mean for us it was really good to just flatly say we're not on amazon so if you see a product on amazon it's counterfeit or stolen or an arbitrage play where they're just relisting something they buy from the store and all those are bad experiences so i mean the the reality is what we saw is you know if you're doing let's say you're doing 10 million on amazon when we pulled off we ended up doing 2x what we were doing on amazon by bringing people to our store yeah so i hope we can have the balls to do that at some point it feels like the devil you have to dance with yeah, it's a big right faucet now. to turn off, man. Yeah, yeah. It's a big faucet to turn off. So ours was only like 10% of the business, I think, when we pulled it off. So it wasn't cataclysmic if we lost it all. You know, it's just a simpler business model. Sweet, man. Where can people learn more about you, follow you, you know, ask you to be a guest or? Yeah, I uh, I specifically say office of social media. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah. E-commerce feel, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm an e-commerce feel. I contribute there pretty regularly. I'm going to try to do that more. I've just got into Clubhouse where I'm not, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not really uh, speaking too much, but um, there's some cool stuff on Clubhouse. Yeah. Sweet, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, swinging by the office and sharing uh, so transparently what you guys are doing. 
Ridge is uh, an inspiration for us and really like a model, a framework for how I want to build a company. So uh, it's always great connecting with like minds. As always, this has been another e-commerce conversations. Hope you guys picked up a nugget or two. Cheers. Keep on growing. <laughs>